Welcome to the Ambulatory Healthcare Today podcast, hosted by the NextGen Advisors. Accelerate your success with insights from a multidisciplinary team of healthcare experts as they discuss an array of topics. These timely discussions can help you better navigate the challenges of running your ambulatory care practice. Here is your host. Hello, this is Graham Brown, Senior Vice President with NextGen Healthcare. Welcome to our Ambulatory Healthcare Today podcast. I'm joined today once again by NextGen's Government Affairs Advisor, Chris Emper, to discuss the upcoming end of the federal government's COVID-19 public health emergency and the implications of that event for our healthcare industry broadly and more specifically for physician groups. Welcome, Chris. Nice to see you again. You as well, Graham. Great to be back. Okay, Chris, so let's kick things off here, and maybe you could just begin by recounting for our listeners some of the background on the public health emergency regarding COVID. Uh, It's been in place for over three years now, but will be coming to an end in just a few weeks' time. Reframe for us why it was put in place, what it was meant to address, and what's going to happen on May 11th when this public health emergency declaration is retired. Yeah, absolutely, Graham. So, You have to turn back to actually January of 2020, at the end of January 2020, when it was really the early days of of COVID, when no one really knew what it was, and it was just kind of coming in, but people thought it was serious. The Department of Health and Human Services, HHS, at the federal level, declared this public health emergency. And this is a, a part of federal law that allows regulations and rules to be waived, in effect, to address emergency periods. So... That happened in January, and then you know six weeks later, when we when the severity of COVID was understood better, and we had a couple laws passed, including the Big CARES Act, a lot of policies were tied into the public health emergency, and those are policies that we've been living with for the last three plus years. So regulatory waivers, financing provisions, um, expansion of different programs, either passed through law or change in CMS regulations. Most of those happened in the spring of 2020 and have been in place technically because they're tied to this public health emergency declaration, which is still in place. And it's been a a bit of a controversy over the last uh, six months to figure out when exactly that unwinds, because obviously the pandemic has entered a, a different phase. Some say it's over, some say it continues, but clearly it's not what it was in 2020. But yet you have all these policies that the healthcare industry and, and many providers hospitals and physician groups have been relying on for three plus years. So you just don't want to pull the rug out from under them. So I think the conversation changed to when exactly can it end? And it had to be by law extended 90 days at a time. And in January of this year, January 2023, the White House came out and said, May 11th is our end date, start to prepare. Since then, they've released a series of of fact sheets and guidance documents and regulatory tweaks to say, what is changing and what is not changing and how is it changing come May 11th. But that's really where this comes into play and and the situation we're dealing with right now. So it's essentially an unwinding of three years of the new normal under COVID. Mm -hmm. Great, good. Well, I think it'll be helpful for us to kind of dissect some of those uh, elements of what's changing, what's been in place for the last three years. You know, early on, I certainly did not anticipate that the three-month renewals were going to be continuing for a full three years here. Um, I think it surprised in many ways to all of us that the pandemic went on as long as it did. Um, so obviously, this is going to be a big event for the industry, given what you've described and what we've all lived through in the past three years. Um, 
During the height of the pandemic, we also talked a little bit about um, some of the temporary policy changes that were put into effect. And we were speculating at the time, I wonder which of these would be made permanent, um, which of them would go away after the emergency ended. So I'd be curious to hear, based on your research and what you've been learning, what uh, now that this moment has arrived, what what is going to stay, what's going to go? Yeah, absolutely. And this was a source of great speculation by myself included throughout the pandemic as to, you know, we've changed all these policies um, in several different areas and many things that providers in the healthcare community and, and patients as well alike. So post-pandemic, you know, what stays around? And, and this is a broader question beyond healthcare as well, as well you know, remote work, Zoom culture, you know, what is going to stay and what is going to change? And this is healthcare's version of it tied to this May 11th deadline. But I would just say with the public health emergency and these waivers, think of three different categories of changes. The first being the provider-based waivers for hospitals and healthcare facilities and providers that allowed them to do their jobs and to expand licensure and to do things that normally they weren't able to do, you know, putting hospital beds in ASCs, those type of things that were really strictly based on the early days of the pandemic and, and staffing up. And then tied to that as well, some of the financing provisions that also had that goal of treating largely inpatient, but outpatient as well, COVID patients. So free testing that's been in place for over three years, as well as some of the uh, reimbursement policies. So hospitals, for instance, get a 20% Medicare pay bump have for any patient that has a COVID diagnosis. So that overall bucket of pandemic specific support, you know, regulatory waivers or financial support, that's something that's going to come to an end and is tied into the public health emergency. So on May 11th, those policies, free testing, um, the hospital uh, pay bump and, and, and the like, they're going to go away. The second category, just broadly because of its tremendous impact, is the insurance coverage expansion, which has primarily come through Medicaid and a change in how they're able to do or not do their redeterminations. And that's something that has a separate deadline, but is also set to unwind with the public health uh, emergency. And then thirdly, just out of its interest and its, its explosion and, and really the impact it's had in our industry of healthcare broadly, but more narrowly, healthcare technology, telehealth. So telehealth was a big success story and a lifeline for many patients and providers in the early days of the pandemic. And now we're in this period where the uh, emergency is ending and a lot of those policies are tied to the emergency but telehealth is going to remain in place in, in some degree. And there's uh, policies that extend beyond the pandemic and the, the May 11th deadline in that regard. Mm -hmm. Telehealth is an interesting one because pre-pandemic, there was very little uptake across the industry of in the use of telehealth. And we did see, as you noted, an incredible spur of interest and utilization of telehealth, including individuals providing services in a state where they didn't have licensure and being able to serve a broader population, being able to provide access when we didn't want anyone to go into a community health center or into their doctor's office or into a hospital if they needed to. And so it was an incredibly important mechanism for people to continue to have continuity of care. So it, so let's talk a little bit about it was an incredible success story. Use of telehealth has dropped since the high point of the pandemic but it's still being used more than it was before the pandemic. So talk a little bit about what this post-pandemic or post-emergency period, uh, more specifically, is going to look like for telehealth. Yeah, great question. And I find this issue so interesting because in our industry, 
we'd heard a lot about telehealth and how this was the future and it was going to revolutionize the delivery of healthcare services for, for years before the pandemic. And it would moved along kind of slowly, largely in part because of federal reimbursement and regulatory issues that held it back. But when the public health emergency came and the CARES Act passed and they changed all the policies, we had about 10 years of growth. What would otherwise would have taken about 10 years, it happened in about two weeks. And we had this test case where we never quite knew what the whole world would be like if everybody's using telehealth all of a sudden overnight and all of a sudden we knew. And as you've mentioned now, things have changed back and it's a, a bit of a hybrid. But I think it's clear that the world is very different than it was pre-pandemic, both for patients and for providers. And I think with the Zoom culture that's taken over on the, the consumer side of things, patients are much more comfortable, even older patients. I'll, I'll speak for my parents who, you know, they might not have known about that before, but certainly after the pandemic, they have less problem and there's less stigma around doing a video visit with a doctor. But specifically, when we talk about this May 11th public health emergency and the telehealth changes, First of all, the Medicare services program, all the rules that held that program back pre-COVID were changed during the emergency and will expire with the emergency. But Congress actually stepped in in December of last year and passed an extension of those policies. So they delinked the end of the emergency from the Medicare telehealth expansion policies. And those Medicare policies are going to stay in effect through the end of 2024, December of next year. Congress is still debating and figuring out exactly how to make them permanent and what they want to do there. It's likely that they'll be extended beyond 2024, but they're not going to end with the public health emergency. Other payers are doing different things, and some of those policies have ended. Some are continuing on in a different timeline. Um, but overall, the, the Medicare program remaining in place and expanding to allow it in every geographic region. Previously, it was restricted just to rural areas and also allowing patients to stay in their homes and enhancing uh, reimbursement policies, that's all going to remain in place. And I think that'll be a, a big key to continuing on with, with the telehealth services adoption uh, in the future. And so just talk a little bit about kind of commercial health insurance, which a lot of folks have. And obviously, um, you know, our, our listeners in provider organizations take a whole variety of different commercial insurance. Um, is that going to be variable? And so would would provider organizations need to kind of call up their local blues plan or their Aetna or Humana contact and understand whether telehealth is still a reimbursable service or what provisions might uh, have changed? Unfortunately, you're exactly right there. That's always uh, complicated when you have multiple payers with different policies. Some of the commercial plans have already changed their policies. Some did so several years ago, back from what was in effect in the spring of and summer of 2020. Um, but some are still tied in some Medicaid policies as well, uh, tied into this May 11th deadline. So I, I've heard from a couple provider groups that are broadly saying, hey, telehealth goes away on May 11th. What, what do you know about that? And of course, the next question is, well, what payer are you specifically talking about? What contract and, and what is the policy there? So it does like with other programs and this transition to value-based reimbursement. Telehealth is just like that, where it's very payer specific. Yeah. So similarly for patients, they can also inquire directly with their insurance carrier if they have commercial insurance as to whether telehealth is still a covered benefit and what provisions or exclusions might apply in that regard. Absolutely. And, and I think it's important to note that as a consumer benefit, as a, you know, an employer-sponsored plan comes together, telehealth is now part of the basic package. It, it's something that people expect and you know the demand part has caught up. And I think that's where, when I was talking about 
you know, they did 10 years of growth in two weeks, yeah. it, it, that part will stay beyond what the government does. Yeah, great. Um, so let's talk a little bit about uh, the April 1st Medicaid deadline. Um, let's provide a little more detail because this is kind of a, a complex issue. Yes, absolutely. So I mentioned the insurance enrollment uh, increases and that being something that changes along with the emergency. So I also mentioned the telehealth um, changes that were extended to 2024. That came through a December 2022 law. As also part of that December 2022 law, Congress delinked the end of this Medicaid enrollment policy that's been in effect from the pandemic from the public health emergency end. And they set an April 1st deadline. And specifically, what they what they did during the pandemic is they um, essentially forced the states um, to not do Medicaid eligibility redeterminations. And this is a standard process that states do to check eligibility and to update their Medicare and Medicaid, excuse me, um, enrollment. And because they weren't doing that during the pandemic for the last three years, right now you have um, pretty pretty um, increased, large increases in numbers of Medicaid enrollment. Um, Pre-pandemic, you had about 70 million people in Medicaid and CHIP nationally. Now it's over 90 million. Starting April 1st of this year, the states have 12 months to complete their Medicaid re-eligibility determination processes. So over the course of the next year, and every state, as is the case with Medicaid, is doing this on a little bit of a different timeline and a little bit differently in terms of the process of operationalizing it, but you're looking at potentially double-digit million people, you know, 10 to 15 million individuals nationally losing Medicaid and CHIP enrollment as a result of these re-eligibility uh, checks coming back into play. So it's going to be a big change, especially for many uh, provider groups who have large safety net and Medicaid populations. Yeah, yeah, a lot, lot of churn in that uh, in that area. Um, was recently reviewing a Kaiser Family Foundation briefing on Medicaid disenrollment. Um, and they noted their estimate was, I think, between approximately 4.7 million and 15 million individuals might be impacted in terms of no longer being eligible for this benefit. But ultimately, you know, as states resume, resume that redetermination and disenrollment effort, certain individuals, uh, Kaiser Family Foundation was noticing, including people uh, that have moved in the past year and their address isn't up to date. Um, or immigrants and people with limited English proficiency or people with disabilities might be at an increased risk of losing this Medicaid coverage um, or experiencing a gap in coverage uh, because of barriers to complete the renewal process. Even if they still actually are categorically eligible, um, they go through a period where they may become ineligible until they are once again eligible. So, so given that um, and the requirement for Medicaid beneficiaries to reapply, it seems important for practices to really understand who in their panel is a Medicaid patient today. What's is if that's their insurance coverage, uh, and this change is going to be happening? How can the practice really support guiding them um, to reapply, get in contact with the right officials at the state to re-enroll for coverage if they're still eligible or? understand alternate coverage options through the private exchanges or other mechanisms to, to get insurance. Certainly seems like we're in a period of big transition around this. And I can just imagine, you know, disappointed and disgruntled patient showing up at a front desk at a practice saying, what do you mean I don't have insurance coverage anymore? They may not be aware of this. Um, so certainly something that practices are going to have to mitigate and manage at the front line. Absolutely. Big administrative headache potentially for uh, patients that see a, a heavy population of Medicaid patients. 
Um, so any parting thoughts then on kind of the legacy of some of these temporary changes? Uh, I think ultimately it remains to be seen. We have some things that are certainly going away in a few weeks with May 11th, others that are sticking around, whether they stick around on a permanent basis forever or they're in some revised process that's a compromise between what was in effect during you know the spring of 2020 at the height of the pandemic and the normal world as, as we see it, I think remains to be seen. Um, but it is interesting when you have data and when you have, as the studies come back and as uh, performance comes back, and not only that, and the government certainly likes to make decisions based on some of these data sets when they come in, um, but for the healthcare industry more broadly, you know, uh, physician groups that have lived through COVID and in March 2020 were running numbers on how do we keep the doors alive and how do we keep our employees employed. And, um, you know, some of the limitations, I think, of the fee-for-service payment system when something like this happens. And I, I think it's unusual and obviously, uh, you know, once in a lifetime that a, a COVID pandemic happened, but you do have other emergencies, you know, natural weather emergencies, things that happen that, you know, might cause a, a change and a, a dip in revenue. And I think as the industry moves away from fee-for-service to value-based reimbursement, I think the, the legacy of COVID might be, how does that jive with what's happening more broadly in the industry? And um, as, a, as a practice, what are some things that even if we're not going to face the next pandemic, we want to make some changes of to do better? What are some things that our patients liked that we want to continue to do more of? So, um, I think overall, now that May 11th is going to come and go in a few weeks, um, we're at a, another transitional period. And I think long term, uh, the, the COVID pandemic will be certainly a historical event in the healthcare industry and one that will help shape the future of not only what the government does, but how the industry proactively decides to respond and, and plan for, for their own futures. Yeah, indeed. Well, excellent. Thank you, Chris, for joining me today in this discussion. Uh, uh, important topic and one that is going to continue to have implications for our colleagues uh, providing care on the day-to-day -day basis on the front lines. Appreciate you sharing your knowledge and insights around this topic. Thank you for joining us to our listeners. This is Graham Brown with NextGen Healthcare. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to the Ambulatory Healthcare Today podcast, hosted by the NextGen Advisors. Never miss an episode by subscribing at nextgen.com slash podcast. To see a list of products and services tailored for ambulatory care practices, visit nextgen.com.